Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod. My name is Ethna Dides and I'm a lecturer here at the School of Law and I'm very pleased to introduce today's episode which features a conversation between myself and Jessica Elder, Student Welfare Officer at Queen's Students Union, on the issue of consent within the context of rape and sexual assault. Over the past few months, there has been increased public interest in the issue of sexual assault, as well as the broader issues related to the investigation and prosecution of these crimes in Northern Ireland, following the high-profile case of the rugby rape trial. An independent review into the criminal justice system's treatment of sexual offences has recently been confirmed and it is to be led by the Right Honourable Sir John Gillen. So just by way of background introductions, I joined the law school in September 2016 as a lecturer and my research intersects the areas of international criminal law, feminist legal theory, sexual offences and children born of sexual assault and conflict. My thesis examined the role of consent in an international criminal definition of rape and I'm in the process of developing some of these ideas in a monograph I'm currently writing. And I would like to welcome Jessica Elder here today and if you could just give us an introduction to yourself. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, my name's Jessica Elder. I'm the Vice President for Welfare in Queen's University Students' Union. Um, I've been in post since 2016 um, and I did a nursing degree before that. I'm also the Welfare Officer for NUSUSI, which is the Northern Ireland uh, national body for students who live in Northern Ireland. Um, and yeah, I've been in that post since 2006, in 2017. Sorry, um, And I suppose a lot of my work focused on... Um, uh, consent education uh, campaign through the Students' Union um, and now at a national level as well. So I suppose that's why I'm here today. I'm really interested in the conversation. So thanks for having me. Okay, great. Thank you for coming. Um, I suppose just to start us off, um, there's been a lot of media interest and different things around this issue of consent and students in Queen's a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016, mm-hmm. they launched um, the Stand Together survey. Yep. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that in terms of what impact or input you had into that report and how it came about and what some of the results were. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the Stand Together survey was launched on the 9th of February in 2016. Um, and I suppose it came about because there had been national surveys done before. Um, there was one in the south of Ireland called the Say Something survey that was done in 2013, but it didn't cover students in Northern Ireland. Then there was a UK-wide survey um, that did cover students in Northern Ireland, but it only represented 0.2% of those students. And when we worked it out, or when the students worked it out, sorry, it was around 2 to four people that it represented. So it wasn't very representative of Northern Ireland. So they came together, um, mostly medical students, um, and decided that we needed to do an NI-wide survey. So they started the survey and it was launched then in 2016. um, And the results were launched in the summer of last year, um, just before we started the second launch of our campaign. Um, I suppose the survey came about because of that reason, but also because there was such a lack of understanding on what was happening in Northern Ireland and a wider society, not just at Queen's. Um, and I suppose 3,097 students filled that survey out, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, even just for students at Queen's, 
the UK-wide survey was only over around 2,000 students had filled that out. And it was the same for the, the national survey in the South. So it was unprecedented the amount of people had filled it out. And it wasn't just people who had experienced sexual assault. There were more people who had filled it out who hadn't. And I suppose some, a bit of the, demo, the demographics was it was majority female had filled it out. Um, with 63% who identified as female and 35 as male. Um, but 33% had experienced unwa unwa unwanted verbal comments of a sexual nature. 13.7% um, reported unwanted sexual comments. Um, and 10.8% experienced unwanted touching of their private areas. And then they broke that down into attempted non-sexual sexual penetration um, and uh, completed non-sexual sexual penetration. So there were 7.9%, which worked out to be 246 people, um, had experienced at least one episode of attempted sexual penetrative assault. And 5.5% of people, which worked out as 169, experienced at least one episode of sexual penetrative assault. Um, so it was very stark findings and it was very difficult to read. And it was a great tribute to the students who sat down and worked with external organisations and internal people to write the report and analyse the data to provide such a strong report that has went on to ripple effect across the whole of Ireland, Northern Ireland and the South. But one thing that really stood out for me was that there were a lot of people who described that they had experienced these things but didn't connect it um, to the definition of the law. Um, and when they were asked if they had... Um, if they felt that they had been sexually assaulted, only 5.6% of people said that they had and a lot of people didn't know. So there's a huge disconnect between people experiencing these things and maybe not understanding what the law is. Yeah, I think that's really, really important and it's really commendable that the students who undertook this task were able to do it and got such overwhelming results and that we now have this new data set that we can look at and try and understand. But as you say, whenever I was looking at the report, the that figure of individuals not actually being aware or being able to label what they experienced as an assault or against the law um, is very, very worrying, but it just does demonstrate, as you say, that disconnect. So my research, I look at generally the issue of consent and I have been looking at it within the international criminal context, so maybe not necessarily at the domestic, but I have looked at how domestic understandings and definitions can help inform our understanding at the international mm. level. So around um, everything that's been happening in Northern Ireland over the past few months, um, I've been looking a little bit more at the law and I'm aware anyway from my previous research that the law in Northern Ireland around sexual offending, which mirrors that in England and Wales, it defines rape generally around three core areas. Mm -hmm. So you firstly need to have um, a perpetrator pe penile penetrate the victim. Mm -hmm. um, so we see there that that's one particular idea of what rape is, this idea of penetration. You've also got that the victim does not consent. And the last element, which is really the fault element, is that the perpetrator did not reasonably believe that the victim consented. So that's really where we find that a case will... Um, be uh, an individual will be convicted on the basis of that or they will not this idea of reasonable belief. So there's those three elements that they, they have to look at. But in terms of what we understand consent to be as well, it's a, it's a very, very contested issue, although it's central to the prosecution of these crimes. And the 
Sexual Offences Northern Ireland Order did put forward a definition of consent. So prior to the order, um, which came about after overhaul of the legislation around sexual offences in 2008, there was no legislative definition. So it was just given its ordinary common sense meaning. And I think probably as you're aware from the survey, there's a lot of disagreement and there's not a consensus as to what consent means. Mm. So that was quite... um, worrying that that was the the legal stance prior to the order. So now we have a definition that says that it is consent is free agreement where an individual um, has the capacity to make that, has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. Now, again, it's a little bit vague, but it's still better than just being given its ordinary meaning. Mm. But what you have then from that definition is that we look at whether the individual consents, but as I mentioned, it goes back to this idea of reasonable belief. And what we might look at in that the legislation has another bit that says you have to actually look at the surrounding circumstances and any steps that the accused took to obtain consent. It's not saying they have to take steps, but you take that into consideration to determine whether the belief was reasonable. Now, prior to the order, there was only had to be an honest belief in consent and that honest belief did not have to be reasonable. So that wasn't a very good starting point. But even though we have moved to this other area of reasonable belief, it's still contested, as I said, in terms of what we might use to demonstrate reasonableness. And this is where you see individuals then looking at the actions of the complainant Mm -hmm. as opposed to the actions of the perpetrator. And this is where we get victim blaming attitudes and different types of defence strategies. For example, asking questions about whether, you know, if there was an alleged abuse between two individuals, why did the complainant not scream mm-hmm. at that point? Why did the complainant not leave the room? Um, why did they not verbalise the no? Now, in law, there is no need for resistance. So you don't need that. You don't need a vocal no. Um, but these methods are used nonetheless to try and undermine the complainant's position and to attach reasonableness to the actions of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's where, again, we have the legal understanding and then we have what do individuals, what might jurors, for example, understand consent or lack of consent to be. So I think just to to bring it back maybe to what you've been working on and the initiatives that you've seen, has there been a really stark disconnect in terms of that understanding of, you know, what consent is? Mm -hmm. And is there any awareness of what the actual legal criteria is, whether it's good, bad or needs reformed? Mm-hmm. Well, after um, I came into office, we ran a consent campaign um, in the first year I was in office um, and we did have a panel debate um, on whether the law on rape is fit for purpose. And since then, it has been a topic, a core topic of conversation throughout the campaign. Um, throughout the campaign, this this academic year, then we ran a workshop um, and we ran that in Elms Village and over 400 people attended that workshop. Okay, so Jessica, do you want to just tell us a little bit about where the workshops originated from, what they involve and what students might expect when they attend? So in the workshops that we run um, in our Consent is Bay campaign originated from NUI Galway. It was actually developed by a psychologist professor called Podrick McNeila and a sexologist called Siobhan O'Higgins. And it was a very good combination for them to come together because he came from a very statistic background, whereas Siobhan came from a very empowering, uh, sex positive background. And they both came together um, and developed a workshop. This workshop's called Smart Consent Workshop. Um, they developed a workshop that had... Um, 
surveyed students in Galway and what their beliefs were and what they thought about consent and incorporated that into a workshop. So people come along to the workshop and it is delivered by consent ambassadors. Those ambassadors are recruited at the start of the year, with the majority of them being students who apply to be ambassadors, but also staff members in Queen's who have applied um, to also be ambassadors. So they're trained together. We get those professors up from Galway, and we also get some training from Nexus um, as well. So they're trained up to deliver the workshops, and they go out and deliver them with students. And students show up the workshop, and they do um, a survey before the workshop, Asking them how they feel, uh, do they feel confident in communicating consent and talking about consent and do they believe that verbal consent should be get, given before any sexual activity, does this include kissing, just to get a baseline of people's opinions before they go into the workshop. They come into the workshop and we do talk about a definition of consent um, and if I can remember correctly it is the freely given uh, non-verbal or verbal uh, communication um, of consent that is ongoing. It talks about how it's freely given and um, that you shouldn't be under any influence and um, whether that's of another person as well. People don't talk about coercion and other people as well and um, that it's ongoing that you can withdraw consent at any time. Um, but before that, we actually ask students what they think um, the definition of consent is. And, you know, because there's no definitive definition that fits everybody, we do use that one loosely. But people come in and they say all of those things. They say it should be freely given, that it should be, you know, people talk about verbal and nonverbal. So it's really interesting to see that people have that um, idea first before they come into a workshop. Throughout the workshop, we talk about we have scenarios um, and people are put into groups and they're given the scenarios and they're asked them whether they feel like consent has been given or not. They give a thumbs up, a thumbs down or they're not really sure and it's in the middle. And we facilitate that conversation in the groups. So one group could believe yes, consent was given and another group can believe no, it wasn't given. So we ask why? Why do you believe that? Why do you think it wasn't given? And it's sort of a back and forth in the room. And then we can throw in some little devil's advocate things like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or if they did this, what do you think about that? And we ask what are better ways that consent could have been communicated both verbally or non-verbally so they pick out parts in the scenario where if they were in that situation where it would be better to have a better communication of consent so that's really good for to allow them to actually see a realistic scenario that could happen and where the best place would be in, in a group and it's really interesting to see as well that uh, people start to become more comfortable with more early verbal communication of sexual activity so before you go back to somebody's house is it you know some people might say it's really weird to be like do you want to go back to mine to have sex uh, whereas somebody else would be like, no, that's perfectly fine because you're letting them know verbally very early on what you would, what your intentions are and what you would like to do because you're really interested to be with that person. Um, throughout the workshop, we also talk about what's good ways to communicate consent, um, uh, yes and no. So can we take a break and things like that? Or can we slow down for a minute or I don't want to do that right now? Um, and people say it's not sexy, but we turn it into a very sexy way. So I'm a very like uh, liberal person. And when we're in the workshop, I do say words that isn't penis or uh, breasts. I do say other words and I'll not say them on the podcast uh, because that's the way people talk. Um, and that's what the facil we do as facilitators. We make them feel comfortable. We give them a space to talk about it. We facilitate the sessions backed up by statistics with scenarios. Um, and we provide a space for people um, to talk about it with their peers. Um, and I would consider myself one of their peers. 2023 uh, so <laughs> that's the way the workshops run um, and we do have really good positive feedback from that and people do leave the workshops feeling that they're more comfortable in talking about consent and interestingly enough one of the scenarios is um, a situation where uh, a young male and female go back to a house party um, and the female asks the male if they would like to go upstairs to help with something and when they get up there they realise that uh, the male realises that there was nothing to help with um, and there starts the coercion 
and and the pressure to engage in sexual activity and the scenario goes through that even though he didn't want to he had sex with this with the girl and we asked students you know was that rape or not and people are really confused and then lots of people will say yes um but then there's a huge conversation afterwards that well it can't be because a girl can't rape a boy and I was like well if it was flipped around how would you feel about the situation and they were like no definitely completely different and that opened some people's eyes because they don't realize that the law is that they don't realize Mm -hmm. that um, it has to be penal penetration or that they don't realise that a woman can't rape a man by law, um, which actually causes a lot of anger and disbelief in the workshops because people don't realise that that's true, um, which can be a really good conversation to have. But I do feel like that the law isn't fit for purpose the way it stands. Um, it's actually really interesting on the third part that you were talking about. Fault elements, so the reasonable belief and consent. And that actually is really interesting because you can look at it from a a different side of that um, the belief they don't understand on how to communicate consent so if we're not taught Mm -hmm. how to communicate consent or what consent is or that you need to have sexual consent or uh, when you're having sexual when you're engaged in a sexual activity then how can people understand that as well but yeah well it that's actually really interesting because there that style of definition there's different variations of how we do define rape and some of them consent is central to our model it's central to models in New Zealand for example in Australia and also in South Africa there's other models that take a circumstance-based approach so consent doesn't feature an explicit definition but it's implied almost but they look for different types of coercive circumstances so force threats these different types of scenarios but some research was carried out in 2016 by scholars in Australia Mm -hmm. And what they did, because as you say, in the different educational workshops and also generally in terms of some academic research that has been carried out into what rape is and how we understand consent, it's asking for general perceptions and general understandings, not actually saying what do you think of the legal definition Mm -hmm. and actually zoning in on that fault element and trying to look at what do you understand as reasonable belief? What would you explore? What would you look at? So these scholars actually did a... um, focused group with some legal professionals and community workers as well who are looking at reforming the law. So they're familiar with it, but not, you know, they don't know it fluently. And whenever the different elements were set out, it was that element that caused the most surprise and it also caused the most criticism. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, if you're looking for reasonable belief and consent, reasonable belief in what? Like, what do we mean when we say consent? Mm -hmm. And also they were given a scenario in terms of individuals participating in some sort of sexual activity and then there's grey areas, there's different things that go on to try and let you think a little bit more about, you know, is there consent, is there Mm -hmm. not, is there reasonable belief? And whenever they were looking at different scenarios, sometimes they would say, well, yes, I think that's rape, but I don't think it meets the legal definition. And the reason why they were saying that was because they think that given the high threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. they don't think that could be met in terms of thinking through that issue of the perpetrator. You know, the victim might not have consented, but the perpetrator reasonably believes that they did because of different circumstances that happened around that. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, as you say, that is quite interesting that maybe that's not something that everyone is completely aware of. Yeah, but also like, you know, you don't, people don't consent whenever they just don't say anything, do you know, they mm-hmm. don't, or people don't consent by not saying anything. Yeah. Um, and also like, I don't know, it just makes it a lot harder and the threshold is a lot higher in your say. So there's a huge disconnect there from your yeah. scenarios as well of like what is actually happening and what the law says is happening. Yeah. Which is completely separate. It's completely different. Yeah. So what's happening 
with people who are engaged in that sexual activity doesn't meet the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. I think we're 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 in a position now that we really do need to reflect on how we understand this because, as I say, we we moved from a position where it was honest belief mm-hmm. in consent, and the reason why you have that is because in criminal law you punish people for blameworthy behaviour, so you need to find some sort of an intention. So that was the idea. If someone honestly believed that there was consent, then they weren't blameworthy; they couldn't be held responsible. Now we've moved to the more seemingly objective standard, but although it's influenced by different subjective understandings of what is reasonable. Mm-hmm. So in the in that um, research that I just mentioned um, undertaken in Australia, one of the participants actually said, well, maybe we should think about not saying reasonable belief, but thinking about whether the accused took reasonable steps to obtain consent. So in the previous, in our current law, it does say it'll take that into consideration, but it's not an explicit requirement. So should we move to that, which is taken on board this more affirmative, communicative, communicative mm-hmm. type of understanding of what consent is and healthy sexual relationships? So I think um, also then from some of the research that I've carried out and looking at what do we mean by consent and how should we best approach it? In international human rights law, for example, there is... Um, evidence of what is known as like an equality approach. And that's where within the actual definition, you state that there must be consent expressed. So an individual must say yes. So you're not looking for whether they said no. So you can't take silence as implied Mm -hmm. consent. For example, you're looking for explicit communication in some way. Now, of course, that approach is also, um, you know, subject to limitations and can be flawed in certain ways because not every yes should completely mean yes there can be yeah. underlying kind of power structures different things that influence or impose also that people, some people who just can't speak yeah yeah exactly yeah. that's a really good point there's a lot as, as you point out there there's a lot of different ways I suppose we are thinking about this and I was just doing it there through a privileged lens yeah in terms of my definitely. own experiences and different things so yeah. there definitely is a wider conversation to move beyond this kind of heteronormative dominant understanding of what is sexual relationships mm-hmm. So I wonder, um, what about in terms of the workshops or initiatives or different things that you've been doing and you're looking at? Because I was talking there a little bit about like reform of the law, which is obviously it can take a lot of time. And currently at the minute in Northern Ireland as well, we, we don't have a government. So mm. um, I'm not really sure, you know, how we could go down that path. But in terms of at a societal level, what measures do you think should be taken and what are you working on at the minute that might be of interest in this area? Yeah, well, we definitely need to have standardised education in secondary schools. That's the biggest thing. And everybody will say that. Any organisation out there trying to push the message of consent um, and organisations and support organisations will always say that because um, right now the sex education we get as young children um, or as adolescents in school could be so completely varied. So some places could, you know, my sister recently got a talk from Nexus, which was unheard of a few years ago whenever I was in school. Some people just get uh, talks from Precious Life or don't get anybody coming in at all and they're not taught anything or they're taught just never to have sex. They're not talk, ta- taught about like consent or um, how to have a safe and healthy relationship or anything like that. And I think moving forward, we really need to, on a societal level, change um, the education that we deliver 
on that level. But also we need to be able to facilitate a wider conversation. So what we're doing with students in higher education empowers them almost to be able to, you come into a space that is dedicated to consent. Okay, maybe you didn't want to be there, but you're interested a bit. So you come along and you're there and you feel comfortable and you're relaxed and you're with other people who have the same mindset as you. Like, maybe we don't want to be here, but we're here. We'll see what it's like. And you start to open a dialogue. And when you leave that workshop, and when we, what we've seen, and when we have a report to show that people feel more confident in talking about sexual consent afterwards in those workshops is that they come in and they don't realise that everyone else around them is thinking the same thing. But they come into the workshop and they think, well, nobody thinks the way I do, or nobody thinks this, or nobody thinks that. We come in and they write down a post-it note that's completely anonymous. They write it down, they stick it up. And actually you see that everybody's saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then they start to be like, oh, okay. Then we move on to scenarios and statistics. And we get to this thing called the rope task, which shows that uh, even though when people were asked the question, do you think sexual activity, do you think uh, verbal consent should be gained before any sexual activity? And around 80% of people said yes. And then they were like, well, how do you think other people filled this out? And they said 40% of people said yes. So the disparity there between what they believe and what they think everybody else believes is this Mm -hmm. perception in society that it's this Mm hush-hush, like sexual activity is hush-hush and it's very much like olden timey inverted commas almost that we we can't communicate. But when you allow people to that space and they feel confident like we've had people and ambassadors like those workshops are delivered by students who we've trained and they go out and they talk with their housemates about it mm-hmm. and then their housemates are all having this conversation who then go out to talk to about with their family about it their friends like I didn't know anything about consent before I came into this job and now I've learned so much my younger sister I delivered the workshop to her mm-hmm. like am I a good sister or am I too involved in the topic mm-hmm. <laughs> you decide but you know now my family have conversations about consent in a really positive way, where my sister's talked to her boyfriend about consent, you know, and it's such a ripple effect. You just have to create a space that allows people um, to to express themselves and understand and have the conversations and empower them to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. In the student movement, that's what we try to do anyway. Um, Backing that up with lots of support and making sure that people know what procedures are in place, where they can go. Um, On a societal level, we really need to start having that education from a younger age, being able to, you know, have funding for support organisations so that people can come forward and people can feel that they're not left alone and that they're on their own, that we have that space for people to talk um, and we start to create a wider societal change in opinion um, and comfort in mm-hmm. talking about sexual activity. Yeah, no, I think you're you're completely right because as you say, it, it is kind of this this hushed or kind of shameful mm. kind of understanding of what sex is and, you know, people don't necessarily want to talk openly about, about it. People can get embarrassed. So I think it's really, really important and the work you talk about it just sounds like it's it's doing so well in terms of that ripple effect that you're mm-hmm. talking about and I even think um it's a generational thing as well because I find that in the research that I'm conducting and different things say if I would be teaching students as well sometimes you put forward these different scenarios and I actually use them with like my mom my dad my sister and different things and it was very very interesting to see what you know, we thought the different perceptions towards those scenarios. And as you say, this this idea of empowerment, because if we don't empower people or let them understand what type of behaviour they're entitled to or what type of, you know, behaviour yeah. and interactions they should be having with other people, then they're not going to use the law. They're not going to, you know, if they, they're not going to understand if they feel, you know, bad about something they're not going to understand that that actually was wrong and that was abuse so if we we try to help you know at a societal level of understanding and talking about this a little bit more then any eventual changes or adaptions to the law will will be useful because people can then apply their understandings to it but if we leave this big disconnect and there's 
no cultural understanding and no talking mm. about it, then if we're not going to move forward, there's not going to be more reporting and faith in the criminal justice system as well. Yeah, and I think to move forward, we really need to start gaining bigger evidence base of what people are thinking out there. So mm-hmm. um, doing focus groups and surveys and finding out what is this, what, what are we thinking as a society? Where are we? Like allowing people to feed into that conversation because we are a collective society together. And I suppose in the student movement, after the SCORE survey, we've now moved on to um, doing a national survey. Um, which is going to be for FE and HE. So not just higher education like Ulster and Queen's and St Mary's and Strammellis, um, but also further education because you have students there um, who will engage in sexual activity like everybody else. So I'm really looking forward to, to launch that survey and we will be looking at the perceptions of people and what they think consent is and possibly why people feel like they can't report, whether that's they don't understand the law, they don't think something's a crime, they feel too embarrassed, they don't know where to go, who to turn to, whether that uh, then interprets that people should be um, engaging with victim organisations more, do they need more funding, do they need more resources, what do people want to see in the student, you know, on a society and obviously our young people like our student, uh, we represent over like 240,000 students across Northern Ireland and that's a huge proportion of people that will give us a really good idea of what change do we want to see? Do we want to see a change in law? Do we want to see that um, standardised sex education uh, when we're younger? Which students are the best people mm-hmm. to ask because they've just went through it. Um, do we want more funding? Do we want like, um, what do we want to see? Do we want more campaigns? Do we want you know, what do we want to see? And it's, I think I'm really excited to have that survey because it will, although this score survey was just for Queen's students, this one is going to be so much wider and I can't wait to see the ripple effect that will have mm-hmm. if the score surveys had the, the ripple effect that he, it has um, and on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an all-Ireland level as well um, USI the Union of Students in Ireland which is the national body for the whole of Ireland they're going to be starting to do another survey as well to try and find out what are people thinking in the south mm-hmm. Um Recently, NUS, the National Union of Students in England, Scotland and Wales, just did one on staff student misconduct. So yeah. now we're starting to look at student on student misconduct, but also staff on student. Mm-hmm. Um, and what what are we doing in our institutions to try and create uh, sup- uh, a great support base and a reporting system um, to get that message out there that we're zero tolerance um, and to provide that education to young people. So... I think to be able to move forward as a society, we need to have that evidence base and no better place than the student movement. Hope we're great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think uh, that's it. Sounds like there's there's so much happening and there's a lot to come. So. Uh, good luck anyone trying to collate all that data but I think that uh, way. <laughs> I, just, I just leave whenever all the work comes <laughs> well I think that it'll be great to see what comes out what needs to be done and as you say responding to the needs of individuals in society and listening to the voices of them rather than trying to impose different views on them so I also think that this as you say it's, it's part of a larger conversation on the issue of consent it's also part of a larger conversation in terms of the trial processes and procedure around uh, uh, rape trials as we see the independent review in Northern Ireland which will be commencing in May um, so I think I would just like to thank you for your reflections um, on the issue of consent and mm. I good luck for everything that's going forward and I'm really looking forward to see the results of the survey Well thank you very much um, I just want to say to any listeners out there that if you have been affected by anything we've talked about in the survey that you can contact Nexus or the 24 hour service uh, domestic helpline that is available for anybody of any gender or sexual orientation so please do get in contact with them if you need any support Details of those will be in the show notes You have been listening to LawPod. 
an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by myself, Ethna Dowds, Rachel Colleen and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thank you to Jessica Elder for coming to us today. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Ethna. This was LawPod. <laughs>